Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Y'all there? Good morning, church. Hey, good to see you guys. Glad you're here. Um, well, so glad to see all of your faces here, and, uh, and so glad to be here in this assembly, this assembly of the people of God, right? This is the body of Christ. This is the bride of Christ, the beloved of Christ. Do you realize that, that you are members of this dearly beloved spouse, this dearly beloved spouse of Christ, that we are here, when, when, when we gather the different members, that's the bride of Christ coming into a place. I like to think of preaching as, as Christ kind of ministering to his wife, speaking tender words to her, ministering to her. Uh, I like to think of that with preaching. Um, so <clears throat> if you don't realize that reality, man, take it in today, all right? So um, if you're just joining us, we've been in a series on Matthew's Gospel looking at the kingdom, the kingdom of God, called Kingdom Come, trying to understand the nature of Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And we've been learning a lot about that. We've been learning, uh, like this last chapter, chapter 18, was Jesus' discourse, discourse on the church, uh, often called the ecclesiological discourse, big fancy word meaning church. So that's why I say Jesus' discourse on the church. And it began to show us what the kingdom of God looks like. It looks like childlike faith, childlike humility, forgiveness, confrontation over offense and sin, but mercy and reconciliation, right? Keeping the unity of the body together, right, through forgiveness. The unity of Christ's body. He cares about the unity of his body. We're going to really see that today, too, as we continue this theme and uh, where Jesus teaches us about marriage and about divorce and about celibacy, that his purposes for these things. And I think that we see uh, in these things, we will see marriage to Christ as the theme that keeps these things together. Marriage to Christ is at the center of what Jesus is saying here. It's why everything he's saying is so important. So, um, so now I, I want to say this at the get-go. Divorce and marital unfaithfulness, uh, these are complicated issues. And for a lot of us, there's a lot of wounds associated with these themes. And so I just want to say, if you want clarity on anything that I say today, uh, or if you want to talk about something, feel free to grab me or any of the pastors. We'd love to talk with you or answer any questions you have or bring any clarity. Um, and th those situations, none, no two of them looks alike. And so we, we need counsel through those. So we, we're happy to do that. So um, <clears throat> before reading it, though, the passage, let's ask the Lord to guide us in his word. <sighs> Heavenly Father, oh, Lord, we approach your throne boldly with confidence because of the blood of your son, Jesus, because you have made us your children. You've adopted us into your family. You've married us to your son. And so we are able to come before your presence, holy and blameless, with great joy. 
by the power of Christ. Lord, teach us your will today regarding marriage, divorce, celibacy. Help us to understand these things. And teach your bride to be faithful. Teach your bride to do what is pleasing to you, to turn away from impurity, and to love you with a whole heart. Keep us faithful and pure. Teach us all these things. We give our time to you. Move among us by your spirit. Open our hearts. Pray it all in the name and power of your son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> all right, so please stand, in, and, uh, please stand for the reading of the word. And uh, I'm going to declare at the end in faith, this is the word of the Lord. And you can respond with heart of gratitude. Thanks be to God, okay? So let's read it. Matthew 19, 1 through 12. <clears throat> now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife? Hold fast. He will hold me fast. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this Receive it. And we receive all these words as the word of God with faith, saying this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, this might surprise you, um, but I want to point out to you what, from the get-go, what I believe is the key verse here in the overarching themes that we're seeing here. The key verse and the key saying here of Jesus is in verse 12, what we just read, where he said, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. 
This is where he ties in everything he's saying. After talking about marriage and divorce, this is where he ties in everything he's been saying into the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so hopefully this will make sense why he makes us his uh, key saying here uh, by the end of our time together. But with these words, his teaching on marriage climaxes, and he begins to show us this truth that marriage on earth is all about marriage to Christ. Marriage on earth is all about marriage to Christ. So church, there's a lot I want to show you through this passage today, but above all, I want you to see this. Christ is your husband. That's the spiritual significance here. Christ is your husband. He longs to be one with you. You are called to be a faithful bride to Christ, pure and holy in devotion. And you are called to live to please Christ, to please your husband. Any amens there? Yeah, well, well, the first crowd was a little bit more engaged here, so this is going to be rough, I can tell. Um, so, get a little more alive, all right? Get a little more alive. So, um, so, the first thing that we see in this passage, the Pharisees, they come up to ask Jesus about divorce. Why do they ask him this? Is it because they want to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him? No. They're there to test him is what the scripture says, to test him. They only want to trap him in order to divide and alienate his followers. They want to bring up a contentious issue that they know if Jesus gives an answer, some people are going to feel alienated. Some people aren't going to like his answer, and they're going to leave. So you see, the issue of divorce, it was divisive among religious people. It's still divisive among religious people, among Christians today. And it all hinged on the interpretation of this law on divorce in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. So let's start by looking at that so we can understand the background of all we're talking about today. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Man, I personally, if I hadn't read this, I would have never interpreted marriage that way. Uh, There's a lot to be said for that, but unfortunately we won't be able to get everything today. Um, Let it be known that I'm wrong and God is right. Now, the division among the Jews, uh, if you want to go back to the first slide, the division among the Jews was over the interpretation of the indecency found in the divorce, right? He's found some indecency in her. What kind of indecency are we talking about here? That's where the disagreement arose. One camp interpreted it this way. Divorce in this law is only allowed if the husband finds sexual indecency, on the part of his wife. The other 
party, the other camp, they said that the husband could divorce his wife for any indecency, right? One rabbinic tradition went so far to say even for breaking a favorite plate. You're cooking in the, in the kitchen, break your husband's favorite mug, and now he can divorce you. So there's a big division here. That's why, and that's why they formed the question that they asked Jesus the way they do in verse 3. They say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any reason? Right? Because that's the issue of the day. For any reason? Now, in Jesus' answer in verses 4 through 6, Jesus first shows them that the interpreta- their interpretation of the Scriptures is totally anemic, totally lacking. They've missed God's intention, right? So you see what Jesus does here. Instead of going back to uh, the law that in Deuteronomy 24 and talking about that, he does something else. He first goes to creation. He goes to God's account of creation and God's intention for marriage there. So he takes them back. He says in in verses 4 through 6, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So what you have here is God saying that, or Jesus saying that it's God who joins together the husband and the wife. It's, it's not the government. When I do a marriage, I say, by the powers invested in me by the state of Vermont, uh, but I, I, I lean towards more saying the power invested in me by God because he is the one who joins the two together in marriage. It's through the covenantal union of marriage and through the sexual union of marriage that the two, that God makes the two become one. There are no longer two in God's eyes, but one. Isn't that not incredible? That that is the, the what is marriage in the eyes of God. So deep is the unity created in marriage that there are no longer two, but one. Do you, do you realize that? That is incredible. And it's important to understand uh, because of how it relates to marriage to Christ, but we'll get into that in a second. So then, then now you interpret di- divorce through this lens. It seems like Jesus is implying divorce is the separation of one. And where you have a division of one, you don't get two complete parts. You get two halves, Right? So the point is, Pharisees, you shouldn't be looking for just any reason to divorce your wife. Just coming up with any reason on a dime, exacting judgment on your spouse and creating the separation where God has made a unity. The bond of marriage is sacred. It's precious. Amen? So, beloved, do you know that Christ has married his church? Christ has married his church. We are the bride of Christ. Where a marriage 
has begun, there are no longer two, but one. He says, make them one with us. As I have been one with you, Father, from before foundation of the world, let them be one with us. I and you and they and me. Oneness. By his blood, Christ cleansed a people for his possession. Sinners cleansed, made able to be one with a holy, just, righteous God. He has set apart for himself from the foundation of the world a bride, a bride, a beautiful bride. And Christ's great desire is to be one with this bride, one with his church, and that his church should be one with him, that nothing should separate them, no division, the Apostle Paul, he unveils this true meaning of marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. We have it up here if you want to put that slide up. And here he's talking to husbands and is relating Christ's marriage to the church to how husbands should be married and, and love their spouses. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. That's how profound our unity is with Christ. We are the very body of Christ. He no longer sees a separate entity. We are one with him, his very body. And then he quotes this passage from Genesis. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Are we reading the same passage here, people? That, that's incredible. Marriage is pointing. This union, it's all been intended by God from the beginning to point us to the unity that we could have with Christ. That's the mystery of marriage. That's what it reveals to us. Put a smile on people. One with Christ. One with Christ. Not to be divided with Christ. One with Christ. Y'all look sad up in here. Come on. Like slap those faces, you know. I'm like, <laughs> smile on, yeah. So <clears throat> Christ becomes one with his bride, the church, and where they are one, there are no longer two, but one. Amen. Thank you, Sylvia. Now, I think that is why Jesus in this passage takes so seriously marriage. It takes so seriously the marital covenant because he would never let any man, any earthly power, any spiritual authority or spiritual power, no demon, Satan himself, to take away his bride. He will hold fast to his bride. He will protect his bride. He will destroy the one who would try to seduce his bride and take her away 
He protects his bride. Truly, what can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? No power, no earthly power, no persecution, no human enemy, no spiritual enemy. No one can rip us out of the love of Christ that is in Christ Jesus, out of this marriage. No one can disannul our marriage. Jesus' answer, he catches the Pharisees off guard, doesn't he? You notice that? Because what he's saying sounds radical. It really sounds like he's saying that divorce is always wrong. Well, if that was the end of the conversation, if that was the end, then we'd have to assume that. But Jesus has more to say. But for now, it's clear he's saying that this is God's good and righteous intention for marriage. That the two should become one and stay one. This is God's purpose. Don't pollute it. You understand? Tracking with me? Give me some nods. Give me some, let me know you're alive. So to that, what do the Pharisees say? The Pharisees say, wait a minute, Jesus. Aren't you forgetting something? What about that law, right? If that's true, why then, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Now, already they're saying something wrong. Did you notice it? They said, they said that Moses commanded. Moses didn't command them to divorce their wives. Jesus rightly says, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. And that's a big difference. If it's a command, then you have to divorce your wife when an indecency is presented. However you may define that indecency. But if it's an allowance, then it's a legitimate option. It is a legitimate alternative. You tracking? So now, Jesus explains to them the reason this allowance was made in the Mosaic Law. In verse 8, he says to them, just look at those first words there, because of your hardness of heart. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Now, notice, first of all, he says, your, your hardness of hearts. Is he talking about the Pharisees here? Well, that wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. The Pharisees weren't around in the time of Jesus, were they, or the time of Moses, right? So how could he be speaking about them? Well, obviously, it's about more than just the Pharisees he's talking to. It's about what the Pharisees represent, right? It's about the hard-heartedness that they present. The Pharisees, they represent the people who are called by God's name, who are among the visible covenant people of God, right? They are the people who, they bear the ring. They've got the ring, right? The, The symbol of the covenant, which for them would have been what? Circumcision. Circumcision. Good job, Joe. So circumcision, Right? They, they, they bore the sign of their covenant. They said the vows. Right? They went to temple. They did all the external things. And yet, they were hard-hearted against their spouse, their husband. Calloused. Hearts unfeeling like fat. Love grown cold. They are faithless and merciless to the wife of their youth. Merciless, faithless to their husband, God, and faithless and merciless to their earthly spouses. 
You see how the two go hand in hand. The two go hand in hand. Merciless to the one they should love, faithless to the one they should love. They're merciless. There's the hard-heartedness of the one who receives offense and who's altogether too ready to receive offense. They can only see what is offensive in their lover. They are exacting, right? Can anybody relate to this if you're married, right? Or have any relationships whatsoever? Saying, you know, why aren't you measuring up? What the heck is wrong with you, you know? I say that to Jenna all the time. No, okay. <laughs> so it's like, I'm just totally joking, everybody, right? So um, more like she to me, right? No, not really. No, okay, I got, I'm going too far there. So um, it's, it's essentially, it's ascribing a standard to the one that you should love that you don't want to apply to yourself, right? A harsh, exacting standard. I want what's fair. It's actually, it's merciless. Mercy, forgiveness, steadfast love, all these are far from the heart that is hardened against the one that they should love. Now, it can't just be this aspect, though, the merciless aspect that Jesus is talking about here with his hard-heartedness. Because if that was true, why would God make an allowance for someone to be merciless, right? Like, well, you guys are merciless and you want to divorce your wives for no reason, so I'll make a law where you can do that, right? That's not what he's talking about here. So it's not just their merciless disposition. They're also faithless. You see, there's the hard-heartedness of the one who gives offense, the one who takes the covenant lightly, who takes the vows lightly, takes the symbol of the covenant lightly, they considered a small thing to flirt with another. Their cold-hearted nature lacks steadfast love and wholehearted devotion, a whole heart. It's a mind that actually considers and acts upon adulterous desire. That is why the law of Moses says that in the case of sexual immorality, Divorce is a legitimate alternative, and that's why Jesus is clearly affirming this Old Testament allowance. It is not required of you to stay with a spouse that is continually unfaithful, that is sexually immoral, that commits adultery, that betrays the covenant, betrays the vows, rendering them meaningless, that betrays the sign of the covenant. You see? So God, he makes an allowance because we're sinful, because there is sin. I allow divorce. Because there are hard hearts in humanity, I allow divorce. The hard-heartedness of mercilessness and the hard-heartedness of faithlessness. Now, if God cares so much about marriage like we've been talking about, right? He clearly cares so much about marriage. It ascribes so much value to it. It is, it is so important to keep the two one. Why allow divorce in the first place, right? It's because of the hardness of hearts. That's what it all boils down to, because of the hardness of hearts, because of the heartless inclination to be merciless to our spouse, 
the heartless inclination to be faithless to our spouse. Now, the question arises, well, if divorce is allowed, then in what situation is it allowed? And the answer to that is in the case of sexual immorality. Verse 9 says this very clearly. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. Except for sexual immorality. Just that phrase, notice that. He gives us an exception clause, right? This is a general rule, except in this case. The one lawful condition for divorce. Now, that's important to notice this because many Christians argue that's, that divorce is always a sin, right? They read that first part of the passage, and they say, look, this is God's intention. Therefore, all divorce is sin. Others don't go that far, but then uh, practically pressure people to stay in an unfaithful marriage, in a marriage where there is adultery, for example. They say, take the higher road, right? Take the higher road. Don't get divorced. And what they do is they essentially put this pressure on this spouse, this undue weight, this, um, this heavy weight and responsibility on the spouse when it's the unfaithful spouse who has committed the grave offense, who has offended the covenant. And yet they're saying, just ignore that. You have to be forgiving. Now, I'll just say forgiveness. By the way, we just learned about forgiveness, right? Here's the fact. You have to forgive. If your spouse sins against you in any way, sexual immorality, adultery, they ask for forgiveness, you have to forgive. Seven times, 70 times, if they commit adultery against you. But do you have to stay in that covenant marriage? No. There's liberty. There's liberty in this. God gives a liberty for divorce in that, in that situation. Now, by the way, I just want to say, maybe a lot of you here are like shocked by what I'm saying because um, there's a lot of solid Bible teachers, pastors. I grew up believing, uh, well, no, I didn't, but I heard a lot of this growing up, um, that, um, you know, some of these things I've talked about, that divorce is, is never right or you have to kind of be pressured to stay in that marriage. Um, I think that that is a bit like the Pharisees imposing a weight of responsibility that the law doesn't impose, that God's righteous law does not impose. And so I, I, I disagree strongly. The word gives a clear exception. Now, this is also important, though, to notice because this exception clause, it also relates to, um, <clears throat> to remarriage. Some argue that once anyone has been divorced they cannot lawfully remarry, right? Essentially, they read this passage. They say, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And they skip over the exception clause, except for sexual immorality. And they call all remarriage adultery. That it is a sin. Now, I myself have been in a family affected by that kind of theology, being raised in the South in Florida. Uh, my father, he was, before he became a Christian, married to a woman, became a Christian. The woman then committed sexual immorality, adultery, fornication, 
and then, even though he wanted to stay in the marriage, divorced him. And then my father got remarried to a beautiful Spanish woman. And then he had, they had kids. I was one of those offspring. And, and essentially, we had this, this floating around us, uh, this idea that this is an adulterous relationship, this marriage, this new marriage is adultery, uh, that you can't be in ministry why are you studying the Bible? You can't be in ministry. Um, and it springs from this totally wrong interpretation that completely ignores this exception. Um, clearly, in the case of sexual immorality, one is at liberty to not only divorce their spouse, but to remarry. Okay? Now, again, might be surprising some of you people by what I'm saying, but I don't care. No, okay. So, uh, feel free to talk with me after about it if you, if you want to argue about it. Now, um, now, here's comes up the, que- the next question. What's he mean by sexual immorality, except for sexual immorality? Notice Jesus doesn't say except for adultery. I think that's how many people read it, except for adultery. That's not what it says. Sexual immorality, the Greek word there is porneia, where we get our word pornography. Now, this word porneia, it's, it's um, uh, translated as sexual immorality because it's such a generic term. So that's why we interpret it with the equally generic term, sexual immorality. So this word can include every form of sexual impurity. That's how broad this word is. So you can make a case that all kinds of sexual immorality are legitimate grounds for divorce, such as, but not limited to, a porn addiction, right? Now, um, <clears throat> now, some, all of this may be leaving some of us insecure feeling right now, right? Right? Um, <clears throat> if you're a sinner at all, right? And you know that you fail a lot, and you know that you have failed a lot. Um, this may be leaving us feeling insecure in our marriage, like, oh my gosh, they could have a legitimate means to divorce me, right? Um, and relating it to marriage to Christ, you might be feeling an insecurity, Saying, well, if that's if he's making a lot of allowance for earthly divorce, is that relevant to our heavenly marriage, right? So, um, <clears throat> so let's explore that. Um, does this extend to the marriage of the people of God to Christ? And I want to tell you two answers: one, no; two, yes. Okay. I love. I, I do that a lot. If you've listened to me preach, is say things that sound contradictory. But um, <clears throat> so that first answer, no, because uh, because Christ He bears patiently with His unfaithful bride. He bears patiently with His unfaithful bride because His heart is not hard toward His bride. You see this in the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, right? In that generation of Israel, though they prostituted themselves out to every god, every pagan worship, God does not divorce that rebellious generation. He patiently endures with them, and he even buys them back from their new master. That's what Hosea 3 verse 1 says, if you want to flip over to that. Go again, 
Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. I had to really restrain myself from making some kind of joke about the cakes because a lot of people don't get that part, but we won't get into that. Now, this is the heart of Christ to his people. Christ is not hard-hearted toward his bride. He is full of mercy. His heart is melted toward his bride. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He is rich in mercy toward her and I think this shows us just how much God hates divorce and why he hates divorce. The fact that he patiently endures with a prostituting bride. That's how much he hates divorce. That he's willing to put up with all of her sexual immoralities for a very long time. He was long-suffering toward Israel in the Old Testament, and he's long-suffering toward the church in the New. Particularly, we see this in the way he treats a, I think this is an extreme example, a certain woman in the church of Theatira, a woman who he calls a false prophetess who's teaching the Theatiran church sexual immorality and to offer sacrifices to false gods. He calls this woman Jezebel. In Revelation 2, verse 21, I want you to just notice the one phrase here that shows the mercy and long, uh, the the long-suffering and patience he bears toward this woman, where he says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent. I gave her time to repent. Even this woman who was so evil, spreading sexual immorality in the church of God, promoting the worship of false gods, he was patient toward her. Can you believe the patience of our God? He was patient even to this, this extreme of an example, that is the long-suffering of Christ toward his bride, the church. He is not unfeeling. He wants all of his people to reach repentance. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Who's that any and all? He just said you. So any of you, all of you, my bride. I'm not willing that any of you should perish. I am patient with you. However, there comes a point where God must judge the people called by his name. For judgment begins at the household of God. That's 1 Peter 4.17. That's exactly what happened with the woman Jezebel in the church of Theotira. And you see this in verses 22 through 23. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according 
to your works. That's a new covenant message, people. That's not an old covenant message. So judgment came to Jezebel and her followers. It's the same thing that happened to Ananias and Sapphira, who tested the spirit. And what happened to them? The spirit judged them. They fell dead. It's the same thing that happens to people like Esau, who are sexually immoral and unholy against the covenant of God, betraying the covenant of God, preferring their own lives, preferring to fill their bellies. The Scripture calls that sexual immorality in Hebrews 12 and unholiness. In the Old Testament, too, there came a point when at last God did decree a judgment of divorce upon faithless Israel for all her trespasses against their covenant. Jeremiah 3, verse 8. For all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. And look also at verse 1 in that same chapter. And you see in verse 1 of the same chapter, Jeremiah 3, verse 1, that if you want to flip to it on the slide, that, um, that he's referencing uh, here that Old Testament law that we looked at in Deuteronomy 24, right? Where, do you remember the part where it says uh, it would be a pollution to remarry that woman that he had divorced? If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares the Lord. That's a scary verse. Scary verse. Now, what's crazy to me in this passage, and I've been trying to wrap my mind around this, is what we see later in this chapter, is that after saying this, right, after saying that it would be a pollution if I took you back, you unfaithful bride, you unfaithful whore. He then says this in verse, verses 12 through 14. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. You see, even in judgment, even in the thick of God's judgment on his people, Christ is so merciful and long-suffering to his bride that he offers a thousand chances for repentance. What the heck? I don't get it. Honestly, this passage, I'm like, it sounds like you were winding up to say, there's no way I'm taking it back. And then he's like, but come back. I don't, I don't get it, all right? I need to really explore that passage more because I don't get it. Um, <clears throat> and yet, sometimes there remains a hardness of heart. There is a heart that resists the Holy Spirit, that is stiff-necked, and stubborn in sexual immorality that prefers the throes of adultery to faithfulness to your husband, Christ. And that's exactly what happened with the Pharisees. 
That's exactly what happened with the Pharisees and that generation of Israel in Jesus' time. Met with their rightful Lord, their rightful husband, what do they do? They reject him. They kill him. And Jesus, he laments this in Matthew 23, 37 through 39. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, after this passage in Matthew 24, Jesus pronounces a prophetic judgment on Israel where he declares the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple that would take place 30 or so years later in AD 70 by the Romans. He committed them to judgment and destruction for their sin, for their rejection of their husband, for their faithlessness. Now, I want to be clear here about something. I don't believe that you can lose your salvation, right? As far as I understand, that's impossible. And here's why. It's because all who God foreknows, he predestines. And all who he predestines, he calls. And all who he calls, he justifies. And all who he justifies, he glorifies. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 30. You see, no one will be lost in that process of sanctification. No one will slip through the cracks. He says who he calls, he justifies. Who he justifies, he glorifies. It is a sure thing. That is the power, the efficacy, the effectiveness of Christ's work. That's why Jesus is able to say, of those whom you gave me, I have not lost one. Remember, he also said, I haven't lost one. I prayed for these that they would endure, except for the son of perdition, Judas. But he's saying that Judas was never mine. Because all the ones that you gave me, I have kept. He keeps all of us. Christ holds fast his bride. He holds us fast. He will take us to the end with great joy, without stumbling. But, roller coaster ride we're on here, right? But among God's people, there are tares. There are tares in the wheat. There are goats in the flocks, right? There are virgins who haven't readied their oil. These are people who play part in the visible kingdom of God. They speak the vows. They have the covenant sign. They have been baptized. They take communion. They have all the signs, but they have no real part in it. They were never his. And in the end, their unfaithfulness shows them to be frauds and counterfeit spouses. John says in 1 John 2.19, I think we have it up there. They went out from us, but they were not of us. 
For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Can you say it any more clearly? They were not of us. They never were. And that's why their unfaithfulness has shown itself. Faithfulness, you see, to the marital covenant of Christ, it is necessary. It is required. It is essential. Now, again, there may be times that we stray. There may be times that we are an unfaithful bride. There may be times that we pursue sexual immorality against our husband. But we must return to our husband. We must hear his cry, return to me, faithless bride. We must come back to him, and he will heal us. Don't be like, in Second Peter 2, don't be like the one who, the dog who returns to his vomit. Don't be like the so, the female pig, so, um, <clears throat> who, after being cleansed, goes back into the mud and muddies herself. Faithfulness is required. So the church, this is a call to faith, faithfulness. It's a call to faithfulness. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Revelation 14, 12. Turn away from unfaithfulness to your husband. Do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion and many were slain. Return to Christ and he will take you back. Now, notice back in our passage, the conversation switches, right? The disciples are shocked by what Jesus is saying. You can't divorce your wife for any reason other than sexual immorality? Well, that makes marriage a huge commitment, right? If that's true, it's better to not marry, is what they say. And what does Jesus say? Yeah. Yeah. He says, yeah, but most people can't accept that. That's his response. Yeah, but most people can't accept that. He says in verse 12, that's my version, by the way. Uh, he says in verse 12, look at that last verse. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, up to this point, Jesus hasn't said anything totally original. Everything he's been saying has been consistent with Genesis and with the law, right? But now he's saying something totally new, something fresh, right? He says there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs. Now, we're not talking about castration here, just to be clear, right? We're talking about a commitment to celibacy. Now, I want to be clear, this isn't, don't confuse this with a season of singleness type theology. Have you ever heard that? Season, season of singleness, right? Where, you know, you hear people like, my boyfriend dumped me, so I'm in a season of singleness, you know, oh, I'm just in a season of singleness. You know, have you ever heard that, right? Um, <clears throat> that's not what he's talking about here. That's like missing breakfast and calling it fasting, right? Right? Let's be real here. Which, how many of us have done that? I've done that. I've definitely done that. Oh, I forgot to eat breakfast while well, I'm fasting, right? No, Jesus is talking here about a clear commitment. They've made themselves eunuchs. Now, there's also a clear object here of this celibacy, right? It's not indiscriminate. It has a clear object. He says they have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. 
right? So in other words, you don't say you're a celibate just because you don't like the options around, right? You're like, well, I don't like any of these people, so yeah, I'm, in a, I'm, I'm celibate, <laughs> right? You know, that's like um, saying you're fasting because you don't like what's on the menu, right? On dinner, and you're like, uh, I'll pass on that. I'm, I'm fasting, yeah. We're learning a lot about fasting today. But, see, they're kind of relevant, fasting and celibacy, right? There's got to be a clear intention and commitment. Um, just like fasting, celibacy has a clear object. It's for the kingdom of God. It's for our husband, Christ. So, why? Well, why does he... Um, why does he recommend celibacy, essentially? Because we just saw how much Jesus values marriage, didn't we? Right? How beautiful marriage is, what it is beautifully pointing to. And now he's saying, yeah, but yeah, you're right. Celibacy, it would be better not to get married. Um, <clears throat> why recommend giving up all that? Well, I got two answers for you. Yes and no. No, I'm kidding. Um, <clears throat> so first, because Christ is our husband, and our goal should be to please him. And it really helps to not have any distractions. Right? That's why the Apostle Paul himself, right, who he himself was a celibate and recommended celibacy to the Corinthians, he says in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 32 through 35, uh, there it is, yep. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. How many anxious people, mar married anxious people here, huh? Right? <laughs> okay. Uh, my parents are laughing, right? So I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman, is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and in spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That's the purpose. Devotion to the Lord that is undivided, free from distraction. That's what the life of a true celibate for the kingdom looks like. It's not like, well, now I have more time to uh, invest in stocks, right? It's a devotion to the Lord. Second, because Christ is our husband, and our earthly marriages will one day come to an end. Did you know that, church, that... We will not be married in heaven to our spouse. How awkward would that be if you've had multiple spouses, right? That's what Jesus says, right? Because the Pharisees, they literally ask him, and actually the Sadducees ask him because they didn't believe in the resurrection, and they're trying to point out how ridiculous it is to believe in the resurrection because this woman had seven husbands. Who is she married to in heaven, Lord? And then he responds, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Like angels in what sense? Like angels in that they are not married, right? It's Matthew twenty-two thirty. So you see, in eternity, we will all be one with each other. 
no one will have a special, unique claim on, each, on, on another person. We will all be one with each other, and we will be one with him. We will be married to him, to our husband Christ. So the one who forgoes marriage on earth skips to the earthly state, or the eternal state, sorry. The one who forgoes marriage on earth skips to the eternal state, the heavenly marriage. Now, as Paul says, a person shouldn't enter into this lightly, just like you wouldn't enter into a marriage lightly, shouldn't enter into a celibate lifestyle lightly, but firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and having determined this in his heart. That's 1 Corinthians 7, verse 37. And that's why a lot of us can't be celibates. Right? I think it's more of a problem in our culture today than ever because our culture promotes lack of self-control. It's like we're pushed to that, right? There is so much rampant sexual immorality around us. It's everywhere. And it makes it difficult to exercise self-control. And that's why I'm married to Jenna, my beautiful wife. And not a celibate. Tried it. Didn't work. Okay. (laughs) So... Um, so it's not for everybody, right? It's better to marry than to burn, to burn with passion. So celibacy is a commitment to marriage to Christ on earth. The celibate chooses to please the Lord through simple devotion to him, free from earthly constraints. And just a a quick word. I mean, think about some of the godliest men in the scriptures were celibate. Jesus himself technically, right? Married to the bride of Christ, Paul, Elijah, right? All these men of God, most of the apostles, probably not Peter. He was probably married. But um, this is, and this is something that I think in the evangelical church that I think that we sometimes get wrong. I think that we solely promote marriage as the alternative, the only alternative, and we forget that actually Jesus and Paul are saying there's a better alternative if you can receive this. If you can do this, there is a better alternative. Now, to be clear, that's not to say that married people are off the hook, right? Well, I'm married, so I guess I, uh, I don't have to be totally devoted to the Lord, right? Uh, Paul says in the same chapter in verse 29, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. We are still to be devoted to the Lord, Devotion to the Lord is still required of us. It's harder, but it's going to be harder. That's the thing. The celibate has an easier time of it. They can have an easier time of it because they don't have that distraction. The married person must be devoted to the Lord and yet have this, you know, beautiful person with them, making them anxious. So, so, in conclusion, church, let us seek unity with our husband. Let us seek oneness with him. Let us seek undivided intimacy with our husband Christ. Let us seek to be faithful to him, not letting anything distract us, not going after worldly passions, fleshly passions. And let us seek to please him with a whole heart, to be devoted to pleasing him with all that we do, glorifying him in our bodies by everything we do. By his grace, he will come to bring us all to the consummation of the kingdom 
and the marriage feast with the Lamb. May our church be a bride found waiting and ready, faithful, pure, devoted, pleasing to the Lord when he returns. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for teaching us these great and awesome truths from your word. Um, Thank you for adopting us into your family, making us married to your son. What a, there is no higher privilege that we could possibly ask for. You didn't just save us from our, from our sins, but you made us one with your Son and with you through your Son. Oh, Lord, what grace, what rich grace you have lavished on us. We ask you, Lord, make us a people who are totally yours. Cleanse us of unfaithfulness. Let us be faithful. Let us not be distracted by other worldly concerns. Let us be pleasing to you in everything, Lord. By your grace, do this. Give us the grace to do these things until you bring us before your presence. In the name and power of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray these things. Amen.